Uh, and if you've been tracking with us over the past five weeks, you've probably noticed that this story is a journey through grief. Right? It starts with loss, famine, displacement, death, destitution. And this one family that we've been following, they've experienced it all. Right? A mom, Naomi, she leaves Bethlehem for a foreign land called Moab during a famine with her husband and with her two sons. And 10 years later, she comes back to Bethlehem, a widow, right? And only accompanied by her widowed daughter-in-law. She's lost both her husband and her sons. She was so overwhelmed by grief that she didn't even really want her daughter-in-law's company. She wanted to send her back to Moab, back to her people, back to her gods. But Ruth, this daughter-in-law, protested. Right? She stuck with Naomi with a love that wouldn't let go, a loyal love, a love that makes and keeps promises. And she walked the long road back to Bethlehem with her. In chapter 1, we saw what it means to walk with grief. Right? Whether we're the ones who are grieving or whether we're the ones who are on the road with the grieving, we saw that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we saw what happens when grief meets grace. When this benefactor, this farm owner, Boaz, comes on the scene and he generously gives uh, Ruth and Naomi more than he's required to give them by law and more than they actually need. We learned that grace is giving more than what's required and grace is giving more than what's needed by the recipient. And we saw how grace like this results in shared joy, right? It reminds us that we're remembered by God. Right? And we start to see Naomi's bitter shell melt away. She becomes more optimistic. She becomes more hopeful. She, she dares to hope. Right? In chapter 3, we saw how faith awakens in this story's main players. Naomi starts thinking about how she can care for Ruth and comes up with this really risky plan to ask Boaz to redeem them, to, to take them under his wing, to marry Ruth to care for Naomi, to continue the family name of their dead husbands, which again was just a huge value in their culture, that land would stay with the family, that that name would go on. She tells her, go under the cover of night and lay at his feet while he's sleeping on the threshing floor, right? A, a very risky plan. But we saw Ruth dare to risk as she says yes to this questionable plan and pursues Boaz. And then in Boaz, we saw that faith dares to love. We saw faith dares to sacrifice, as he says yes to Ruth at cost to himself. And all of this, this is just leading up to chapter 4, and all of this is undergirded by the loving kindness of God. Right? We can hope because God loves us. Right? We can love because God loves us. And then we ended last week on a cliffhanger, right? Boaz introduces an obstacle to their happy ending. He introduces this man who's more closely related to their family than he is, this other redeemer. And this guy has first right of refusal when it comes to redeeming Naomi, Ruth, and their family's property. This was the law of the land. If he chooses to redeem them, then Boaz has no grounds to. And so now in chapter 4... The next morning has dawned since Ruth laid at Boaz's feet. 
And the narrator has left us eager to see if Ruth and Naomi will end up in the hands of a stranger or if they'll be redeemed by this gentle, kind, generous man named Boaz. And I'll just tell you ahead of time, chapter four is all about a legacy of love. How small and specific acts of love can change the world. They can change the world for one person, but they can also change the world for many. We're going to see that today. Two big themes we're going to look at this morning are redeeming love and the legacy of love. Redeeming love and a legacy of love. Particularly how one act of love can change the world for a person and, and the legacy of love, how love can, can and has changed the world for many. So let's look at what happens in this story, why these two ideas, redeeming love and a legacy of love, stand out. So in verse 1, Boaz goes out to the gate of the town and he sits there. He's waiting for this family redeemer to pass by. And uh, the city gate was like the center of operations for town. So it was where things happened. People would gather there for conversation. They'd gather there for the administration of justice. Uh, It's where deals were made and sealed. Uh, And there were folks in the town that were called elders, right? And they oversaw all these deals. They ratified them as witnesses. And so if you think about the gates of the city, these were like the business center of the town, right? The town hall. And the court all wrapped up in one, happening in one place at the gates of the town. And so naturally, this is where Boaz waits because he's interested in making a deal on this day. Right? This is just the place where a redeemer would formally uh, choose to redeem land, widows, in the presence of all the people and the elders. And you heard it when Rosalind read, the Redeemer does walk by Boaz. Boaz stops him, and he introduces him to this opportunity to redeem the land. He says, let me know right now if you want it, because I'm next in line. And it's very strategic, because he's putting him on the spot in public. He wants him to make a swift decision. Right? He understandably doesn't want this process to be drawn out. He wants to know if this guy is going to refuse his right or not. Right? And to our dismay, to the reader's disappointment, this first redeemer, he says, I want to redeem it. Right? Sounds like a good deal to him. Right? And it's here in the story where our hearts might drop. Right? And, and we'd ask, how is this actually going to work out? You know, We were getting hopeful that she was going to end up with Boaz, and now this guy says, no, yeah, I'll redeem it. That's why I asked Rosalind to only read up to that point. Uh, You know, for being thousands of years old, this is a really well-told story, right? But that's not the end of the story, is it? Right, Boaz is a wise businessman, apparently, and he goes on. See, he left one small detail out of his carefully crafted sales pitch. He has this man on the hook in front of the whole town, right? Witnesses everywhere. He goes on to say in verse 5, On the day when you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Right? This puts a damper on the deal, doesn't it? This man seems to not know Ruth. Uh, Boaz intentionally leaves her out in the beginning. And he says, this old widow, 
right? Who's be, who's beyond, you know, he's thinking that this is, he might know about Naomi thinking that she's an old widow who's beyond like childbearing years. That would be fine because when she passed away, this redeemer would get to keep the land, right? But in comes Ruth, right? This second widow, young enough to have children, children who will not carry on the name of this redeemer, but the name of her late husband. They'll inherit the land that he's buying, to Boaz, Ruth and Naomi are the most valuable part of this deal, right? Because he loves Ruth. He cares about Naomi's well-being. Something about their story has just gripped him. Uh, but to this man, that's not the best part of the deal, is it? Right? He doesn't reveal how important Naomi and Ruth are to him. He shows off the land first, and this first redeemer bites, but then he sours the deal by introducing these two liabilities, right? As, a, as a, this man would see them. And, and a future liability that would eventually be uh, taking the land back from him. So if you don't love Ruth, if you don't love her family, then this deal is no deal at all, right? And this man is now on the spot. He has to choose. He has to choose now, right? There's no choosing the land without the women. And if he does say yes, He'd have to vow in front of all these people that he would act exactly as Boaz had framed this agreement. So what does he say? Verse 6. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. I will ruin my inheritance. This would disrupt my legacy. This would cost me too much. In other words, what's to gain from this deal? Right, take my right of redemption, he tells Boaz. I can't redeem it. Now, Boaz has clearly put some thought into this, right? It's very strategic, right? And his strategy is born out of love. Verse 8, so the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Verse 7 tells us that this was the ritual of the day. When you made a deal, you'd remove your sandal and hand it to the other person. Verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, her late husband, Kilian and Malon, their sons. I have also required Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. And so just from this speech, we know Boaz fully understands exactly what he's doing. Right? He's redeeming the land and Ruth, and he's fully okay with perpetuating her deceased husband's name on that property. Right? This marriage, it's not like the ideal marriage of their day. Right? Usually a man like Boaz would be thinking of his own legacy. But here he is voluntarily perpetuating the legacy of another man. Right? And this is how it worked in that day and time. Right? This is what a redeemer would do because continuing a family name, continuing family ownership of, of land, that was a big deal to them. This land was doled out at the foundation of their nation. But he's far from required to redeem Ruth. He doesn't have to do it. He wants to. So much that he's willing to employ these masterful negotiation tactics. 
right? He loves Ruth, and he's a man of honor who loves her family. Right, after all, in, in chapter 2, we see that the whole reason he noticed Ruth was because of her love for Naomi. He didn't notice her because of her looks or anything else, how industrious she was. He noticed her because of her love for Naomi, right? That she gave up her whole life in Moab to come to a foreign land with her mother-in-law, that she'd promised she'd never leave her. She told her, only death will separate us. Her love for Naomi sparked Boaz's love for her. Right? Their mutual compassion for Naomi is actually what initially bonded them together. Right? They're in this partnership now to bless this woman. Right? And Boaz keeps his promise to Ruth. Right? Redeeming love. Love that renews and restores. Redeeming love is found and kept promises. It's found in sacrifice, right? Boaz was willing to sacrifice, where redeemer number one was unwilling, right? He wasn't a redeemer at all. In fact, Boaz's redemption of this family, it will bring uh, flourishing into their lives, right? Redemption brings flourishing. Redeeming love brings flourishing. And now they're far from destitution under his wing. He marries Ruth, Right? She starts out in chapter 2 as gathering the scraps from his farm. And then by chapter 4, she becomes his wife. Right? She has been selfless through this entire story. She's been humble. She's been faithful. She's been loving. But all the while, think about it, she was surely having her own dark days. Right? This focuses a lot on Naomi's depression, a lot on Naomi's pain. But Ruth was in pain too. Right? Ruth lost her husband, too. Ruth gave up her home. Right? She's lost just as much as Naomi. And she sought shelter under the wings of God. And she found physical shelter under the wing of Boaz. Now, Boaz, he seals uh, the deal with this unnamed uh, redeemer at the city gates. And the witnesses, they respond like this in verse 11. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May, your, may you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, uh, that was born to Judah because of the offspring of the Lord will give you by, because uh, the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman, right? They're unaware of the loving kindness of Boaz's, they're not unaware of the um, loving kindness of Boaz's act, right? They're fully aware, they know how not great this deal is from like, you know, on paper. They know that it's not a financially profitable move. And they pray for this union that's about to be forged between them. They say, may the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, right? The mothers of the 12 sons of Jacob, the father of every tribe in Israel, right? They pray that God would give this woman a legacy. And they pray the same for Boaz. They say, may you be powerful in Ephrathah and your name be well known in Bethlehem. 
And then they pray, may your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, who's the son of Jacob. Uh, because of the offspring, the Lord will give you by this young woman. And now if you've read Genesis 38, you might know about how Perez came to be. Right? It's, it's interesting that they cite this person. Right? In one sense, it makes perfect sense since Bethlehem was in the land of Judah, right? named after one of Jacob's sons, and therefore a tribe of Israel who are descended from Judah and, and Bethlehem. That was part of the land that was given to the tribe of Judah. And so many of the people there were likely descendants of Perez. Right? But Perez was born uh, because his mother Tamar, right, the daughter-in-law of Judah, she lost her husband. Right, similar to, to Naomi, similar to Ruth, right? And but her father in law withheld his sole surviving son from redeeming her. He left her unredeemed. And long story short, and this is where it gets really wild, knowing this, she tricks her father in law into sleeping with her, pretending to be a prostitute, so she could bear a son, right? So she could carry on her husband's legacy. And there's a lot to this story, right? This is messy life in the Bible. Uh, but she was gravely mistreated, and she connived her way into getting what she wanted. And Perez was born. And needless to say, Naomi, uh, no, Tamar didn't flourish, right? Yet God's grace, right, even in the mess of it all, by God's grace, Perez's descendants were many, right? They flourished, and the Bible has some really graphic stories of how messed up humans are and how sinful we can be. And that's not to say that these stories are beautiful. It's just to show exactly what life is like. The Bible is like life. These things happen in life as crazy as they are. Right? You compare that, though, with the redemption story of Ruth, right? where both parties are honest, right? where Boaz actually loves Ruth, and takes on a duty that's not even required of him. This would have been required of Judah's son. This was not required of Boaz. There's just a stark contrast as they cite Perez in that blessing. And that's important. This book, this book is in the Old Testament, and it's essentially a relational oasis in the Old Testament. Right? People will look at the Old Testament and they'll cringe and say, is this really what God wants? Polygamy, abuse of women, adultery, sexual immorality of all kinds, right? That's all over the Old Testament. No, right? That's not what God wants. This is just the way humans are. But against that backdrop, God gives us the book of Ruth, right? An oasis, where love isn't forced, but it's freely given and freely received. It's devoted. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. A picture of the loving kindness of God himself. Right? And this is one of those pictures that's not a picture of God's kindness in his forbearance of sin, but his kindness in his love and his pursuit of us. It's a picture of how we can resemble our creator in his loving kindness. And yes, it's a picture of marriage that's rare in the Old Testament and even rare in our world today. 
right? A marriage born not out of what can I get from one another, right? What can we get from one another? What can I get from you? But a man who loves selflessly, right? A woman who loves selflessly coming together and also loving this widowed mother-in-law. And don't forget that Naomi is actually the main character of this story. This is her story. She's in the beginning. She's how it opens. She's how it closes. Together, Boaz and Ruth forge a legacy of love. Right? They don't even know the world-changing effects, right? the world-changing significance that their love uh, is going to have. And I'm going to get to that, but first I want to talk about how this legacy actually moves upward. You know, sometimes we think about a legacy and we think about it moving downward a family, in a family tree, but a legacy can also move upward in a family tree. Uh, the story, it ends with a glimpse of Naomi's new life. Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a baby. Right? Verse 14, the women, these are the women of Bethlehem, they said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Now, remember the women of the town in chapter one, right? They, they, we've seen them before. They were in chapter one. They were the ones who said, could this be Naomi when they saw her? Right? They could scarcely recognize Naomi when she returned to Bethlehem, right? She was so bitter. She was so grieved that she was unrecognizable. And now they're here gathered around her, blessing God. They're referring to this baby as her redeemer. Right? God has not left you without a redeemer, they say. They pray, may his name be well known in Israel. God has remembered her, and they can all see it. Right? He will renew your life, they say. He'll sustain you in your old age. This baby is a reminder of God's love for Naomi. Right? The bitter widow is being renewed. Verse 15, they say, Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Again, let's look back at chapter 1. In verse 21, Naomi told the women in Bethlehem that she had left Bethlehem full and that God had returned her empty. And she said this with Ruth standing right next to her. I left full and God has brought me back empty. Here the women are saying, this daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons. God didn't send her back empty. Right? He sent her back with love, with Ruth's love. And that love has sprouted into a legacy upward and downward. Naomi is being renewed by love. It says, Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became like a mother to him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi. Right? This woman who lost both her sons. Can you picture this grandma, like from the Naomi that we met in chapter one to this, bouncing a baby on her knee, smiling? I bet her whole countenance changed, right? I bet she looked like Naomi again. Like there's hope after loss. The Lord can bring flourishing after loss. That's a truth. At the same time, 
being real, we have to acknowledge that not everybody gets the baby. Right? Not everybody gets the husband. Not everybody gets the dream. But that's not the point of this story. If we read this story and, and we leave believing that it's the point of the story, we've missed something big. Right? And we might end up more discouraged than we were when we started the story. So hear me when I say this is not a formula to follow with sure results that we will gain back all that's been lost here on earth. That promise isn't made in Scripture. Right? It's promised that those who put their faith in Jesus will gain an eternal her- inheritance, right? That will gain a greater redemption in the kingdom of God, that our hope is in the resurrection. But material benefits aren't guaranteed here and now. We, we know that just from our own experience of life, right? So should we not ask? No, we should still ask. We should ask God because he loves us. He does love to bless us. Does God sometimes provide for us in that way to the praise of his glorious grace? Absolutely. Does he care? Yes. But is Ruth a formula for such an experience, a one plus one equals two kind of thing? No. If we view it that way, we will end up like Naomi. It's very possible that we will end up like Naomi in the beginning of this story. Right? When we don't get what we ask for, when, we, when bad things happen, when we don't get what we expect, right? we might say, God, I did what I was supposed to do. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Right? God is dealing bitterly with me, she said. You know, we gravitate to formulas because they're easier. Right? They allow us to bypass faith because formulas, they're straightforward, right? They're cause and effect. But faith means believing without seeing. Or as Hebrews 11.1 1 puts it, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Right? This story isn't a formula. This is a picture of love. Right? The love of God, the love of his people, it's a picture of the power of love. Right? Think about it. No one in this story is actually seeking to benefit themselves. Right? They're seeking the benefit of others. Have you noticed that as we've walked through it? Boaz is seeking benefit for Naomi and Ruth. Ruth is seeking it for Naomi. Naomi is seeking it for Ruth. This is the point. Right? God loves you. God loves us with a love that won't let go. So we can love others like that. We can show them his love, and we can let the love of others remind us how much God loves us. Rinse and repeat, right? This is the Christian life. Love God, love others, but also when others are loving you, Realize that that is the love of God in your life. And when you do this, you have no idea what's going to happen, right? You have no idea what the ramifications will be of a life lived like that. And this story shows us that love leaves a legacy. Right? Even unbeknownst to the ones who are doling out the love, there's a greater legacy at play in this story than Naomi getting a grandbaby, Right, this book, it closes with a genealogy. And first, 
they tell us that they named this baby Obed. And then we see in the genealogy that Boaz was actually a descendant of Perez. Remember Perez from that wild story? Boaz was actually a descendant from Perez. Boaz came from that family. God doesn't look for people with the perfect pedigree. He can disrupt generational dysfunction. And so we learn that Boaz was descended from Perez. And in this genealogy, we learn that Obed, Ruth's baby, was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Right? David from Bethlehem. David, who would eventually become the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, Israel's greatest king. Right? And this story is written to the people of Israel, and it shows that God loves small and unexpected starts. Right? But the legacy doesn't stop there. If you go to Matthew's gospel in the New Testament, you'll see the very first verse says an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right? And it goes into more depth, and you'll see where Boaz, Ruth, and David fit into Jesus' uh, lineage in verses 5 and 6 in that chapter. Right? God works graciously in our lives when we mess up big time, like Judah and Tamar. But he also works when we love greatly, like Ruth and Boaz. Right? They had no idea that in their act of obedience, in their act of love, that they were bringing out a legacy of kings. Right? They had no idea that they were bringing about a legacy that led to the king of kings. That Ruth's redemption would lead to the redeemer of all humanity. The son of man. The son of God. Jesus, the Messiah. Right? That's a legacy of love. Jesus is the embodiment of God's loving kindness. God's loyal love. God's promise-keeping love. Right? Jesus was the promised one. And he came, right? He's God's kept promise. And he sacrificed for us. He gave up his life to redeem us. He wore our destitution on his body when he died naked on a cross. He died for the sins of Judah and Tamar and for our sins. And for all of messed up humanity, right? He died. He was raised to life, bringing renewal like the birth of baby Obed, right? He renews us like baby Obed renewed Naomi. He brings new meaning to our lives. He brings purpose to our lives. He restores loss. He reverses generations of family dysfunction. He replaces our regrettable past with an eternal future. He redeems us. Right? He redeems us. He is our Redeemer. And our Redeemer lives today. Right? Jesus is the epitome of redeeming love. He's the epitome of love's legacy. And his legacy is eternal. Right? And it's free. You just have to ask. You just have to put your faith in him. Ask him now. Right? If, if you haven't done that, ask him now if you haven't before. You can ask him anytime. Jesus, redeem me. My past, my present, my future. Make me yours. 
Take me under your wing because you are my redeemer. He won't reject you, right? He died for you. Love leaves a legacy. Now, the idea of a legacy, that sounds really big. It can be intimidating. Even if you're following Jesus today, you might be thinking, like, legacy? I'm just trying to get through today, right? I'm just trying to get through working a job that I hate or, or making sure my kids are taken care of, dealing with bedtimes, naps, and diapers. Right? Or I'm dealing with chronic pain right now. I'm navigating tumultuous relationships. Legacy isn't what's on my mind right now. Today is on my mind, and maybe tomorrow. Right? And that's okay. That's okay. We can be faithful today. We can love today. We only have to deal with today. Right? You know, when we think about just even the quintessential servant uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, leaving a legacy in our day and age. One of the people that we often think about is Mother Teresa, right? I've heard it even said before, you know, what do you expect? I'm not Mother Teresa, you know? And, you know, she's outside our tradition. Uh, she was a Catholic nun, but she was a believer in Jesus, and her work was inspired by her faith in him. And, and it's intimidating when you look at the work she did. Like, oh, I could never do that. Right? Her slogan was only all for Jesus. Right? I've personally listened to her testimony, and there's no denying that her work was motivated by God's grace. Right? She was a missionary in Calcutta, and she started this home for the dying called Kaligat, uh, trying to provide a space for the sick and dying to die with dignity. She'd literally pull people from the gutter. She'd clean them. She'd minister to them. She'd put them in a bed only to have them die within days or hours or even sometimes minutes after she laid them there, all just so that they could have one moment of dignity, all so that they didn't have to be alone. She'd say, even with all the suffering that she had seen and the poverty that she had witnessed, she still said, loneliness is the most terrible poverty. Her ministry spread all over the world in multiple countries, serving the poor and the destitute. And at one point, I heard her say that over 40,000 people um, had gone through that house of the death and dying. Um, they'd been received at Caligat. But it didn't start that way, right? It didn't start with 40,000 people. And her life wasn't set on big things. At one point in her ministry, an Italian priest that she worked with, he had concerns and doubts when they were about to start this organization to care for the poor. He told her, we're few. How will we pull this off? Right? They didn't have a lot of people. How are we going to pull this off financially? How are we going to pull this off operationally? And he recalled that she responded to him with strength and gentleness. She said this, brother, trust. Do not look for big things. Do small things with great love. My secret is just do one, one, one at a time. You start with one, the best you know, with childlike faith that God will do the rest, that God will provide, and I promise you that will happen. If you doubt about his providence, then this is not your call. When I first made the decision to pick up that first lady from the gutter filled with maggots, and to bring her to the house, that's when I started my work. It was only two months later that I picked up the second one. 
and a while later, a third one. This was my beginning. Do not look for big things. Our work, brother, must be done like there will be no one other than that single person. No large crowd, but individual to individual, person to person, one, one, just one at a time. She'd say, it's not how much we give, but how much love we put in the giving. Do you want to leave a legacy of love? I'd start with one, right? Like there will be no other one besides that single person. Start with one. It doesn't have to be someone in a gutter. If you're a parent, it can be your child, right? If you're a child and your parents are still with us, it can be your parents, right? Start with your spouse, then one neighbor. Like there will be no other one but that single person, right? Then another one, then another one, one at a time, right? Ruth gave herself to one person, Naomi, Boaz gave himself to one person, Ruth. And Jesus gave himself for the world. Right? You just start with one, the best you know, with childlike faith that God will do the rest. Because that's the burden that he took for us on the cross. Right? God's love is a redeeming love. And through him, we can leave a legacy of love that grows into eternity. <laughs>